The title of this morning's message um, is God's Unfailing Promise to Be With His People. So if you're taking notes, you can put that down. Um, now, I thought it just wouldn't be right to stand here without at least bringing up an article I'd read in the week. Um, so, a poll of almost 1,400 regular churchgoers found that the most popular sermon length, favoured by 36% of participants, was between 20 and 30 minutes. And Nathan, in his great wisdom, has only given me 20 minutes, so it's good to know that 36% of you will be happy. Um, (laughs) In a more related article, related being a very loose term, uh, I read that the average person spends one to two years of their life just waiting in line. Um, And in fact, waiting in general just feels like an inevitable part of the human experience. Uh, We're always waiting in traffic jams, we're always waiting at the pharmacy, Um, we wait for our prayers to be answered, we wait for new movies or music to come out, and if you're anything like me, you'll wait far too long staring at the oven for your frozen pizza to turn just the right colour of cheese on top. And funnily enough, this article also said, even if you go to some of the most extreme environments on earth, Mount Everest, at the top of the summit, Cues to reach the very top can be up to two hours long. So you just can't escape waiting. Um, So at the end of Genesis, because we're reading the last five chapters of the book today, we come to a people on the brink of a long wait. Earlier in Genesis, God had promised to Abraham, who is Jacob's grandfather, that although he would be made into a great nation, his descendants would be sojourners in a land that wasn't theirs, afflicted for 400 years, but afterward shall come out with great possessions. So, as we read today, we're going to see Jacob go down into Egypt, um, and it would be some 400 plus years before his descendants would make their astonishing exodus out of their slavery and affliction. Here were a people about to go into a period of waiting in a foreign land, um, clinging on to the promises of God, and needing to know that God would keep them. And that really isn't too unlike us today. Uh, As we've seen in our recent study in the book of 1 Peter, right now we are strangers and exiles. Having been made citizens of heaven, we now live in a foreign land. Um, And just like the Israelites, we are waiting also. We are waiting for the return of Christ our King. So, the question is, what encouragement does this last portion of Genesis Hold for us today as aliens and sojourners in this world waiting for the day of our Lord. Let's, if you want to turn to chapter 46, I'm just going to read verses 1 to 7. It says this. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Then Jacob set out from Bathsheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob their father, their little ones and their wives in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt, 
Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters. All his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. Lord, I do pray that um, as we read your word and as I preach your word that uh, you would fill us all afresh with your Holy Spirit, that um, it would be the Holy Spirit preaching this morning and it would be the Holy Spirit um, transforming our hearts to understand these words, Lord. I pray that we would all come with childlike hearts, that we wouldn't come feeling like we already know this story, Lord, but that we would come with fresh expectation to meet Jesus in these pages. Um, help us, we pray. Amen. So, we have seen countless trips down into Egypt. It seems like the whole story of Joseph is just this back and forth between Canaan and Egypt. First, we saw uh, Joseph being sold into slavery, going down. Uh, and then last week, Nathan talked us through the multiple trips made by his brothers in order to survive the famine. Now we see Jacob himself making the journey. This journey is especially significant because we see God coming and speaking to Joseph, uh, Jacob. Sorry. As we look closer, let's consider the first point in this morning's message, which is God assures his people that he will be with them. So as you saw in this account, um, it's not just a one way to Egypt going on here. Jacob stops off along the way in Beersheba. Um, setting off on this journey had been a very difficult decision for him to make, and Beersheba was as far as you could get in Canaan before leaving it. It wasn't easy for Jacob to leave that land, um, no matter how famine-stricken it was, no matter how difficult it was. He was clinging on to Canaan because God had promised that land to his family. If Jacob ever needed to hear from God, now is the time. And here we see God speak personally to him in a way he speaks to his people on multiple occasions. Did you notice that he called out his name twice? Jacob, Jacob. Think of that time where God interrupted Abraham on the mountain. He said, Abraham, Abraham. Think of Samuel as a young boy called to be a prophet. He said, Samuel, Samuel. And think even as late as uh, Paul on the road to Damascus as God calls out, Saul, Saul. These were all people in crisis with choices before them. And Jacob was afraid of making the choice that seemed contrary to God's promise. So God comes to address this fear and to reassure him. Verse 3 says, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. This is amazing. God loves to dispel fear and speak peace to his people. But the, he doesn't even leave it there. He also gives Jacob the reason not to be afraid. In verse 4 he says, for I myself will go down with you to Egypt and I will also bring you up again. Now, this would not only have been really important for Jacob, but also to the people of Israel hearing this account hundreds of years later. As a people that had already been brought out of Egypt, they would know that God kept his promises and that unlike other gods, God went with them wherever they go. Um, there are many other times in the Bible where God makes similar promises to his people. God says to Moses, um, when he speaks to Pharaoh, I will be with you. God says to Joshua, I will not fail you or forsake you. And in Isaiah, God says, even when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And we should not gloss over these promises as if they are not ours also. We shouldn't just look on them and say, that was those promises for those people. Through Christ, um, the Bible says we have been grafted into Israel or made a part of the family of Israel. And through him, all of God's promises are for us too. 
Through Christ also, we see God's continuation of his promise to be with his people. Christ was the Emmanuel. He was God with us. He came to earth and lived and dwelt amongst us. He ate with us. He made friendships. He laughed and cried. Before leaving earth, he told his disciples, Behold, I am with you to the end of the age. And to assure us of this, God imparts his Holy Spirit to dwell amongst us now. We can have great confidence in God's desire to be with us because he's not left us alone, but has filled us with his spirit to be our comforter and our guide. Um, God may seem distant sometimes, but don't ever doubt that God wants to be with his people. We see all throughout the Bible from his presence in the garden to his presence in the tabernacle, to the temple, to Jesus coming amongst us, to his spirit now, even to the promise of heaven, he shows us over and over this same theme. And us now, we wait for that coming day where we will ultimately dwell with him in heaven. I was reading Revelation and it speaks of this day and it says this and I thought it was great. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst no more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear of their eyes. I think that's the best thing about heaven, is that God's presence will be sheltering us. He will be our shepherd. He's be guiding us even in heaven. That's what we have to look forward to. I just think these promises are so rich um, and you see them proved over and over and over again throughout the Bible and I'm sure most of us here would say that we've seen them proved over and over again in our lives. Um, this is just great assurance we have of God's desire to be with his people. Uh, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit because the next section is pretty much a list of everyone that went in to the promised land. So we're going to read... Um, from verse 28 and speaking of Jacob it says this he had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen and they came into the land of Goshen then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel his father in Goshen he presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while Israel said to Joseph now let me die since I have seen your face and I know that you are still alive Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, my brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me and their men are shepherds for they have been keepers of livestock and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth, even until now both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, my father and my brothers with their flocks and herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers, he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds, as our fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, We have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now, please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. 
Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. So the point, point two, every new passage is going to have a new point. Ooh. Um, <laughs> point two uh, I want to kind of explore as we look at this is that God uses a mediator to be with his people. So in those words that Joseph says, I will go down and speak to Pharaoh, Joseph is being an advocate for his family. It is only because of Joseph that this ragtag group of 70 foreigners are able to gain access to the king of Egypt. Without him and the carefully constructed speech that Joseph prefers for them, they would get nowhere as they approached the person that the Egyptians regarded as a living God. The brothers come before Pharaoh, invited in because of Joseph, and beg for land in Egypt. They say, please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. And here we wait with bated breath for Pharaoh's response. This demand to live in the land of Goshen wasn't something Joseph suggested. It was kind of a bold move on the brother's half. So we can imagine him clenching in. Um, But we see something extraordinary. We see Pharaoh, this person regarded as a living God, giving the best of his land to foreigners, and not just foreigners, shepherds. It said here that shepherds are abominations to the Egyptians. How incredible is this? Joseph's brothers in no way deserve this treatment. They had sold their own brother into slavery, this person that they came through. Instead, they received the land because of extraordinary grace, given to them because of the person by which they came to the king. And there's an amazing parallel here between Joseph and Jesus, our great high priest. As Joseph's brothers would have no chance of getting a meeting with Pharaoh, so that we would have no chance of coming before God without a mediator. God is utterly holy. There is no hint of, or, of darkness or evil about him. Far more than just being regarded as a God, like Pharaoh was, this God commands the entire universe. As people who have done wrong and committed evil, we cannot stand in the presence of a holy God. Um, in fact, Isaiah, a prophet who came long after Joseph, cries this when he stands before God in a vision. Woe to me, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Just like Joseph's brothers, we are very much in need of a mediator if we are to come before God. But how amazing is this, that God, in his unfailing promise to be with his people, provides the mediator himself. 1 Timothy 2 verse 5 says this, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. This provision of a mediator makes it possible for sinful humans to have a relationship with God and take hold of all the blessings that come with his presence. In their commentary on Joseph, Ian Duguid and Matthew Harmon write this, and it should come up on the screen. Yes. When we come to God through Christ, we don't get what we deserve. We get far more than we could have ever imagined. We are forgiven for our sins and transgressions, adopted into God's family as sons and daughters, made co-heirs with Christ of a glorious eternal inheritance, and thus made more than conquerors in life and death. As we receive God's blessings in Christ, so also Israel and his family received Pharaoh's blessings through Joseph. So let's just finish 
chapter 47, starting at verse 27. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were very fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, Now, if I have found favour in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, Swear to me, and he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. So the next two chapters, 48 and 49, um, describe the event, the lead up to Jacob's death. As we would expect, he spends his time on the deathbed, calling his sons one by one and blessing them, instructing them, giving them wisdom. Once he's finished doing this, Jacob is at long last ready for death. Let's read the last verse of chapter 49 and then jump to verse 15 of the next chapter. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sins because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not fear for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land, to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a cot. Put in a coffin in Egypt. So that's the end of Genesis. And in that last bit, um, my final point is God's promise to be with his people cannot be thwarted by sin. So reading this, we may have thought that the very culmination of this story was the death of Joseph. All throughout this story, we've seen this steady rise of tension of um, brothers separated, of famine um, and it's built up to this final resolution of family reconciliation around Joseph's, Jacob's deathbed. As Jacob's family gather around his deathbed to receive his final blessings, it seems that all is well for Joseph and his brothers. 
They have been saved from starvation, allowed to thrive in Europe, and their father has died a happy man, reunited with his long-lost son. But as we just led, read, after Jacob died, there was this one last twist in the story, one last crescendo of action. Without the safety net of having Jacob around, Joseph's brothers began to worry that they had only been temporarily forgiven. Forgetting Joseph's kindness, in their guilt they ask each other, won't Joseph want to pay us back for all that we did to him? Um, it, in verse 15 they say to each other, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. And this idea of real lasting forgiveness is one that plagues all of us and a question that echoes throughout the Bible from the fall in the garden right up until the cross. How can a people who have sinned gain, last, gain lasting forgiveness from God? How can we be with God when the problem of sin remains? So the brothers get together and they come up with this cunning plan to evade Joseph's punishment. They think to send a message to Joseph containing Jacob's supposed last words. In this message, they are attempting to continue their father's protection from beyond the grave. They say, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. But when these words get to Joseph, they're so shocking to him that he weeps. Do they not understand all the kindness and forgiveness he'd already shown them? Um, but in his response to his brothers, Joseph doesn't forget or play down the pain they caused him. He recognizes the evil committed against him, but he also recognizes that it's not his place to enact revenge, for all evil will be judged by God. He says to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? What he's saying here is, I'm not God. I'm not worthy or able to judge evil. Joseph forgave them ultimately, not because their evil wasn't that bad, but because he knew that there was an ultimate judge who would judge all things rightly. But should this worry us in our search of true lasting forgiveness with God, if he is the ultimate judge, we should be radically concerned with how we can be right with him. The amazing thing about these verses is that they serve not only as a powerful reminder that God uses evil for good, but also that he is a gracious God who forgives sinners instead of punishing them. Joseph tells the brothers, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And we see this played out in the whole story of Joseph, don't we? Even when things look their darkest, when their, his brothers sold him into slavery because of sin, when Potiphar's wife threw him into jail because of sin, these events were essential in his rise to power and life-saving management of the famine. God was at work using a variety of people and circumstances to bring about his plan of salvation for his people. And we see the ultimate example of God turning around the plans of wicked men uh, for the good of his people in the cross of Christ. Here again, we see a confusing set of circumstances where it's just so hard to see how God is working. This Jesus, the promised Messiah, a triumphant king, was betrayed and abandoned by his friends mocked and scorned by his enemies, delivered to die. It appeared that God's plans to save his people through the Messiah had been thwarted by human sin, 
But as Peter addresses the crowd at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, he says in verse 23, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. In overcoming the grave, Jesus secures our eternal relationship with the Father through the forgiveness of sins. We deserve death for our sin. Our sin should make us unable to be with God. But through his resurrection, Jesus loosed the pangs of death and brought us life. So the story of Joseph and the story of the cross should bring us great comfort that no matter how absurd and irrational circumstances may seem, God is in control and means it for good. A verse that I think many of us will hold close to our heart is Jeremiah 29, verse 11. It says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Paul confirms this later in Romans 28, just before the bit Nathan read out this morning. And we know that those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. What a full picture we get of God's providential care over the entirety of our lives when we stack up all these verses along with Genesis 50 verse 20, but God meant it for good. Sin does not get in God's way. His plans for us do not change as a result of a sin-ravished world and sin cannot stop us entering his presence for our sins have been paid in full at the cross. It's funny that the death that happened at the hands of sinful men was the very thing that would reconcile sinful hearts to God. God's plan to be with his people, to be with us, cannot be thwarted by sin, as he so graciously provides the cross to bridge the chasm between him and us. Um, This quote by John Piper helps us to make sense of our own confusing lives in light of the story of Joseph as we wait for eternity with our Saviour. It says this, Life is not a straight line leading from one blessing to the next and then finally to heaven. Life is a winding and troubled road, switchback after switchback. And the point of biblical stories like Joseph and Job and Esther and Ruth is to help us feel in our bones, not just know in our heads, that God is for us in all these strange turns. God is not just showing up after the trouble and clearing it up. He is plotting the course and managing the troubles with far-reaching purposes for our good and for the glory of Jesus Christ. So the story of Joseph, as we've looked at it in a whole, should bring us assurance of the goodness of the God we have. He works all things to the good of his people, to bring them salvation and to ultimately dwell with them. He promises to be with us throughout the crazy twists and turns. He promises us Christ as a mediator, allowing us into his presence, and he displays in the cross that sin cannot thwart any of his good plans for our lives. Let's uh, sing of his faithfulness as I pray for us all.